Welcome to Learn with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell. Are you curious about the future of psychedelic medicine and the role of venture capital in funding its environment? Are you wondering even what psychedelic medicine is beyond just a buzzword? Then look no further than our guest today, Brom Rector. As the founder of Empath Ventures, a VC fund dedicated to psychedelic medicine, Brom is at the forefront of a burgeoning industry with enormous potential to revolutionize mental health treatment. The stuff that they can do just with PTSD is amazing. Brom discusses the science, culture, and investing opportunities of the psychedelic industry. He shares his personal journey, the challenges facing startups in the space, and the exciting projects Empath Ventures is working on. If you like this type of content, please subscribe. We put out two to three new episodes weekly. Thank you everyone for liking, subscribing, and commenting thus far. Let's stay curious and learn about Brom Rector, the future of psychedelic medicine, on this episode of the Learn Lowell Show. Have you ever read the Aragon series? No, but I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> oh, there's a, a character named Brahman there. And I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what I've heard. I've not read it, but I know that, uh, that is my name is in there. Hmm. Yeah. It's a good character. It's probably one of the, the nicer characters that's in that good. series. Yeah. yeah. It's like someone to look up to. So I, I, I like I to think I'm one of the nicer characters <laughs> in, <real life. laughs> in the, in the story of life. So on, on Twitter, you stated, this is what doing psychedelics is like. And for, if I remember, I'll throw the image up on the screen and it's, it's a video of a pig being held up to the sky so it can see the sky because <laughs> pigs can't see the sky and it's just screaming. <laughs> so I've not done psychedelics, but yeah, if that felt kind of poignant. So can you unpack how that's like doing psychedelic psychedelics? Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. So the joke there is like, like you said, like the pigs can't normally like see the sky. And so someone's like, can you hold the pig up to the sky so we can see it? And it like the person holds up the pig and the pig is just like screaming into the void. And I mean, it's like half joke, but half serious. Um, psychedelics can really help you see things in a new way um, and can really help you help break you out of your normal thought patterns. And um Sometimes for some people that might involve like this feeling of like, oh my God, there's so much more to me. Like my little self-centered worldview is like totally wrong. And there's like this massive universe out there. And it's like beautiful in the same way that like the ocean is beautiful, but it's also like tremendous and just infinite and like kind of terrifying at the same time. You know what I mean? I, I understand the the ocean one because I, I live around the Midwest. And seeing a Great Lake, it's like, okay, it's big, but like you, you can kind of make out the other side. When you right. look at the ocean, there's like a weight to the ocean. Or right, when you're out exactly. in the middle of the nowhere and you look up at the stars and there's no light pollution, there's a weight to looking up at the stars. Yeah. Uh, I'm not done psychedelics. So I, and that's, so I, kind of I would say that most people, you know, psychedelic experiences usually don't involve screaming at the sky. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's this sense where it's like, oh my God, I've now seen a dimension that I normally can't see. Like that pig is living in 2D and all of a sudden it's seeing 3D and it's like, oh no. <laughs> like um that's i think in many ways what psychedelics can be like where have you um experimented yourself and if so what was is it was it is it like that experimented is an understatement yeah i've i've done <laughs> many different psychedelics many many different times um and yeah it didn't it wasn't like a horror it was more just like oh my god there's like so much to the world that i have not uh you know, thought about before, been able to comprehend before. Um, I have not been able to see reality from this angle before. It's just, it's it's a pretty interesting experience for sure. Um, I wonder what, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead, please. I was just saying, what, I wonder what would happen if you put a hundred, like if you experimented with a hundred VCs and gave them psilocybin, you know, psychedelics type stuff, and then a hundred just, you know, they can just roam in the wild as normal as a control group. 
And I wonder if the if if that other perspective would allow them to do better as a as like performative, because they'd be able to have a different perspective on things. Or it would would it be about the same if you like average it out for ten years? It's hard to say. Um, I don't think that people should think about. I mean, in general, I don't know that psychedelics are necessarily going to give you insights that are going to turn you into like a better investor or a better employee, but they might give you insights that turn you into like a better, you know, friend or romantic partner or like, you know, human, I would say. Yeah. It's less about, I don't know that psychedelics are going to give you some insight that's going to allow you to like better at your, you know, Excel job or whatever, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Well, from what I understand, it gives you a better understanding of who you are and it kind of humbles you. And I feel like one of the one, one issue some people have is that they get a little arrogant and they kind of like believe their own toast and then they, you know, that it gets waterlogged and they fall through and and drowned. Um, So I feel like in that regard, they'd be a little bit more uh, humble and like check their facts and stuff like that. So I feel like being more grounded and humble and a better person might result in being a better investor. Though at the same time, I mean, there's like that Wolf of Wall Street aspect of things where like, are you like going around and like sharking people? I don't know. Can you be, can you be a humble shark from Shark Tank? I don't know. I, I guess Mark Cuban's kind of like that. Yeah. I I mean, Shark Tank is definitely like an exaggeration. I think most of the VCs that do well in the long term, in the long run, um, do well by being good people. Like it's pretty hard. The VC especially um, is a business of reputations. And if you're too sharky, that, you know, reputation spreads pretty quickly and it's only a matter of time before people stop wanting to deal with you. Um, You would hope that having some kind of humbling experience, whether it's psychedelics or something else would make people, um, you know, better at what they do. That said, sometimes people's egos can get inflated through psychedelics as well. It's it's not like, um, yeah, yeah you imagine like you give someone this experience that makes it feel like they've kind of seen God or uncovered the truth or whatever. Um, there's one interpretation of that, which is like, I've seen all of this wonder and now I'm humbled. And then there's this other sense where it's like, I've seen all of this wonder and I must be special if I've been able to see it. You know what I mean? It's almost like, yeah, I, I, I realized I was Jesus or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. There's which is a- why, which is why um, when you read like the psychedelic, the literature around like using psychedelics and medicine, um, having some kind of like coaching or guiding through the experience can be helpful to kind of like channel the feelings in a productive way rather than in an unproductive way. There's a book called the immortality key, which I'm looking at because it's on my, my to do to read and about like a third through it. And they talk about how like they think psychedelics might be one of the um, ways that we started religion and stuff like that. So it'd be, it'd be interesting if even in modern times, like some people get little Messiah about it. And there's this theory that like they may have started religion. So like maybe like one in a hundred people get that Messiah complex and those, those people start cults. And then, you know, there's a hundred of those cults and one of them survives to become Christianity right? <laughs> or, or whichever ones exist. Yeah. I haven't read the immortality key, but I'm familiar with like the concept behind the book and yeah, that idea that psychedelics were used in a lot of ancient traditions that some of which ended up becoming the religions that we know today. There's probably some truth to it. It's yeah. hard to imagine that there wouldn't be. 
I heard that I heard as well that there's like uh, familiar structures and the experiences that people have, depending on what they're the substance they're they're taking. Like, which I wonder is if it's just like the fundamental nature of our our brains that we all on some level just kind of experience things similarly, or if they're like you're seeing something that is there that you just normally don't see. As someone who's been through it, what is what is your theory on this? Yeah, there's some debate around this. I mean, I I don't know that you're seeing something that's not there. I think it's more like a lot of people see what can best be described as like geometry or like these infinite fractal geometric patterns. Most likely the explanation is that the psychedelics are doing something that acts on like the visual cortex and makes people's vision, vision distorted in that way. Um, there's also this sense of like priming, like very few people have their first psychedelic, have their first psychedelic experience without reading about psychedelic experiences or without talking to someone else that's had one before. And so they hear from these people like, oh, when I did psychedelics, I saw X. And so now the person going into their experience has that as like the pretext and it's already in their mind and they're more likely to, you know, see X, whatever, whatever X is. So it's hard to have like a totally, you know, clear control group in terms of what is shown versus what is kind of pre-programmed. Yeah. Is, um, I, I I was reading and I heard that sometimes people try it and it's like uh, some experts call it like uh, I I think I heard it on the Jorgen podcast where they said that it's like someone like entered a door and couldn't come back like sometimes like like the the studies aren't good enough to like make sure it a hundred percent has nothing bad happen to it. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, in terms of people not coming back, there certainly have been instances of people like tr- people having. Um, episodes whether it's like schizophrenic episodes or like psychotic episodes triggered by psychedelics um it's hard to know like what exactly caused that it could be that maybe the person had some serious trauma that they had repressed for their entire life and then the psychedelic made them remember that like horrible thing that happened when they were young it could also be that the person decided to do psychedelics at a festival after they had had 10 shots of vodka and hadn't been drinking water all day. You know what I mean? Like drug, drug interactions and alcohol interactions could be bad. Um, for the most part, I think with proper like medical supervision and when the drugs are done in a controlled setting and when the drugs are actually the drugs that you think are being consumed and not like something else that's been sold to you as something, it seems like most people have pretty positive outcomes, but there's always going to be challenges and side effects just like there is with any other drug. Yeah, in uh, college, there's uh, any negative event that I can think of was because someone bought something and it was like stepped on with something else. So they jumped out a window thinking it was like just marijuana. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like, you know, if we could regulate it and we made sure like the quality is there, I think it'd make everything else a little easier. And you could tax it, like I don't know, put into schools or something or like roads that are crumbling. There's like things you could do with that money Um, versus just, I think from the 70s or 60s, like, the stuff has been illegal and i i don't remember the, the the logic behind putting that paywall in uh, or making that like legal wall in there so that people can't experiment and explore with it yeah the reason that they created um the reason that they made psychedelics illegal and created the dea by the way the dea didn't even exist prior to like the late 60s was a couple of things were happening this is like when the vietnam war is going on on the one hand, you have soldiers coming back from Vietnam. They've been either physically injured or mentally injured or both. And a lot of them are hooked on opiate on like heroin and stuff because it's the only thing that's like, you know, c- keeping the pain away. 
And then you also have the anti-war movement, like the hippie movement, which is like fueled by psychedelics. Um, Nixon does not like this. He's very upset. Um, and so he decides that he's going to create the Drug Enforcement Agency and pass the Controlled Substances Act, which made opiates like heroin and psychedelics uh, that schedule one controlled substances, meaning there, there was no medical use and that they uh, should be totally illegal. And that is how we got the DEA. That is how we got the war on drugs. And that is how psychedelics and other drugs became illegal. And um, I think I saw in one of your podcasts, I think you were guessing on someone else, but that you kind of expect that to change the next three to five years, the le- uh, legalization of it. Yeah. So there are a few things that are happening. Um, on the one hand, we're having something happen in psychedelics, which is very similar to what happened in cannabis, which is where individual states are passing laws, usually their ballot measures, that allow the psychedelics to become decriminalized under state law. They're still illegal federally, just like cannabis is still illegal federally. But in these specific states, um, you're able to access psychedelics in some fashion, um, Mm -hmm. just like how it is with cannabis. So Oregon passed a law like this. Colorado also passed a law like this recently within the last year. I think other states will follow soon. Also, there are a whole bunch of companies that are running clinical trials of psychedelics and trying to get them approved by the FDA. FDA as therapies for mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and PTSD. If the FDA approves any of these drugs, then you'll be able to access them by a doctor. A doctor will be able to write you a prescription. Hmm. So we've got both like the state-by-state action, and then we've got like the, the FDA action that's um, hap- that's taking place. Is that, uh, are you in on any of that ad- advocacy or are you just, are you are just benefiting from that wave? Um, I'm emotionally invested in the advocacy and when Cal- when there's a serious effort underway in California to do this, I will definitely be involved in it. Uh, you know, I'm a resident of California and so like, I can't vote in the Oregon or Colorado elections. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. The, uh, but here we did have, like- um, wh- th- there was an attempt back in 2020. Mm. Um, and you know, I signed and I tried to get other people to sign, but there just wasn't enough momentum. So we'll try again soon. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what the general population thoughts are on the you know these types of substances um as it changed is it the same because like the only people i hear talking about it are are people that like have looked into it a little bit so they're a little bit more yeah. open to it but like, i don't you know i don't like go down and like to a random church and be like what do you guys think about this <laughs> like see what they think the random church might be a bit far out at the moment but it does seem like the conversation around psychedelics is changing yeah. nationally and it's changing in a big way. I mean, you look at like some of these documentaries that have come out on Netflix, How to Change Your Mind, Fantastic Fungi, et cetera. These are some of the like top documentaries on Netflix for a period of time. Um, Good Housekeeping, which is like a magazine that targets, you know, women in their 50s in middle America, ran like a full page, like multi-page cover story on psychedelics as therapeutics. Uh, so psychedelics are escaping like the coastal burning man bubbles and making their way into like the popular conscience of middle of, you know, the average American. Um, another thing that drove that was, I think, um, a lot of stories of veterans coming back from the war in Iraq and Afghanistan that had PTSD and that had treated their PTSD with psychedelics. I think that really helped push psychedelics as a good thing, um, in the minds of like more conservative folks. Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, has spoken at multiple psychedelic events saying he thinks veterans should be able to access psychedelic therapies. So 
I would say that the conversation is a lot more advanced than, you know, you, you might think it's, it's, it's moving pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear because anything that can help out, if it was just veterans, I, it would, it'd be enough, you know, but then there's so many other populations that can make use of these types of things to help them with whatever's going on in their life, totally. like depression, all these different things are going on, especially with COVID. I think everyone's like pretty messed up from that as well. But yeah. the idea that people can come back and have PTSD or something and go from a state of like having it to like working through it and getting better is, is pretty profound given it. I know like in Vietnam, for instance, like people came back and people were like spit on them and stuff. And like people now are a little bit more respectful when people come back from mm-hmm. um, Afghanistan and stuff, even if they don't support the war, they're like, they're nice to the troops, which is nice. But at the same time, it's like, if the, if the suicide rates are just ridiculous, that means they're not getting the support they need. So like more, more therapies and stuff like this that can make them better integrate and work through their, the trauma that they went through and, you know, fighting for America and stuff like that. I think it's like really critical. I think most, I'd like to believe that most, like 99% of Americans would, you know, support our troops, even if they don't like what they're doing. Yeah. You know, sure. Yeah. And, and, and on the subject of PTSD, you know, veterans are not even the group that has the most PTSD, like, um, women that have been sexually assaulted have like mm. higher rates of PST than veterans do. So P- PTSD is often associated with veterans and that's like a correct association, but it's not the only group that suffers from it. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty widespread phenomenon with no real treatment at the moment. So hopefully psychedelics can become approved as a treatment for it. Another, another interesting um, thing that I think about is that normal, like normal uh, drug abuse. When I, when you, when you look at the different types of drugs, that people are abusing like if it's like you're abusing heroin or you know whatever the the feeling that people seek out and the abuse is usually the lack of feeling not like feeling good or feeling whatever it's actually like like feeling nothing but with the the stuff that we're talking about today it's like it's more like you're more feeling like you're you're being more in touch with your emotions so if you were to which which i think is like a, an under appreciated difference like one is seeking apathy, one is seeking empathy and connection to the people around you. Like that, that in and of itself is going to be pretty significant. Um, just in terms of like, yeah, how it affects yeah. Things. You just think about like alcohol, alcohol for the most part is like brain off, you know, <laughs> whereas psychedelics yeah. are like brain on more than normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there, um, how, how sciencey do you, do you like to play in terms of these fields? Like, do you, are you reading journal publications? Are you meeting with scientists and like nerding out? <laughs> like how, how deep down the rabbit hole do you like yeah. to go? Um, we try to get pretty deep when necessary. When we are evaluating companies that are doing some kind of like FDA research, um, we get a pretty good understanding of the science. I have, I'm not a scientist myself, but I have scientists that I work with on the fund. Um, Like my business partners, she has a science background and we have, you know, a group of advisors that we work with as well. So we evaluate the company's scientific claims and their plans for running experiments just as closely as we evaluate the team's strength Mm -hmm. and like the other non-science parts of the business when deciding to make an investment. Yeah. So for people listening in, I think there was like, three or four different like Medicare categories that I was thinking about in terms of yeah. like, if you were to look at it on the high end, would, would you be able to just like, for, you know, for us, just kind of like break them down uh, roughly? Sure. Sure. Yeah. In terms of like the types of companies that are out there and the types of companies that we invest in, um, I, I think the most broad separation that you can make is between companies that are doing pharma, pharmaceutical stuff and 
companies that are not doing pharmaceutical stuff. So the pharmaceutical companies, these are companies that are trying to get some kind of psychedelic drug approved by the FDA. The non-pharmaceutical companies are everything else. So this could be like a telehealth platform that is prescribing a drug that's already approved. It could be a clinic down in Mexico that's you know serving drugs to people, serving psychedelics to people today. It could be software that creates music for psychedelic therapy, which is a company that we invested in. Um, when you look at the pharma side, there's kind of two subcategories there. One is the companies that are doing drug development. This is uh, the act of taking a drug that already exists like psilocybin or MDMA or LSD and trying to get it approved by the FDA as some kind of therapy. And then there's drug discovery, which is where you're actually trying to invent a new drug. Um, there's a long history of humans inventing psychedelic drugs like LSD and MDMA and ketamine were all invented by humans. They were invented by humans a long time ago using old technology. And uh, we think that if you apply today's um, you know, understanding of the brain, today's computational chemistry techniques, et cetera, like there's a good chance that you could invent new drugs that are even more interesting than the psychedelics that we already kind of know and love. So those are kind of the big three categories there. It's like, trying to develop drugs that already exist, trying to invent new drugs, and then sort of the everything else category that's not involved in the actual uh, approval process of drugs. From an, an investor standpoint, is it a unique opportunity to come in now before regulatory has been com completely taken care of? Because then yeah. I imagine like these, these companies aren't really getting a lot of people to appreciate them. And so you can come in with the right support from an investor standpoint, not just like giving the money, but also like the technical help that your experience and your team's experience can come in and help them with. Like, it seems like a unique opportunity for you. It's like the, the people who were there before the gold rush type of thing. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, I, I would say that we're not, so, it's like, we're kind of at exactly the right time. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. like there's interest and there's momentum building, but you know, Goldman Sachs hasn't like gotten involved in psychedelics yet. So we're like a little bit earlier than some of those bigger institutions, which I think will uh, help create like really good returns for us. Yeah. What's, what, what keeps you doing venture capital versus just like picking one thing and dedicating your mind to it? Like what, what has you do like the broad, you get to look at a bunch of different things, which maybe that might yeah. be the thing versus like digging deep on one thing and just like pushing that to the end goal. Well, my background professionally is in the investment field. So I worked at a hedge yeah. fund for most of my 20s. Um, and so I've kind of always been an investor professionally. And so that is kind of what I'm doing now in the psychedelic space. I would certainly be interested in starting a company. And it's something that you know I've talked to some of my partners about. But I think that unless you have an idea that you're so convinced is a good idea, that it makes total sense to do that. Then the venture capital route where you, you know, have a bit of a diversified portfolio, maybe makes a bit more sense. Yeah. I think Jeff Bezos was a fund finance guy. Was He wasn't he was, like, a, yeah, he worked, he yeah. worked at, um, man, I forget the name of the fund, but it was, it was definitely one of the bigger, uh, hedge funds and he quit when he was 30 years old to start Amazon. Yeah. yeah. I was recently listening to this, uh, podcast where there, there was a guy talking to a communist and the communist was like, they were asking the question, who is, who, who's worse for the working man, Stalin or Jeff Bezos? And I was like, well, that's an interesting question to think about. Because like Jeff Bezos' uh, workers are not exactly happy people. But then pe were people under Stalin happy people? Um, there was an interesting argument there. I've never thought about it before. Like normally it's just like, oh, Jeff Bezos does business and people can leave if they want. But then it's like, if you don't have the other opportunity, can you really leave? Is it like kind of an indentured turpitude? 
Um, like there were people that yeah, were like, and if, you, and if you can, the, the jobs that you can lead to may not be much better than what you get at Amazon. Yeah. The, uh, what, just as like a quick in, look into what it is to be a hedge fund person, mm-hmm. what does that day look like? You just look at spreadsheets, you call on a people like in a fire sale. What do you, what do you, do? what do you actually do? Uh, there are a lot of different types of hedge funds that have different strategies. Um, the type of hedge fund that I worked at was what you would call a quantitative hedge fund, meaning that we did not sit there and like analyze the markets and make decisions about what to invest in. We wrote machine learning algorithms that analyzed the markets and made the decisions for us. So like my academic background is in computer science, machine learning, and finance. So my day was, I would show up to the office. I would write code for like 10 hours a day. And then I would go home. <laughs> that was pretty much what I did. Okay. Um, and all of that code was like ingesting market data, running all these like analyses against it, trying to discover new machine learning models that could be applied to the financial markets in interesting ways. Uh, and then once we built those models, we would put them into production and those models would like trade automatically for us. Um, that is what we did. Uh, at the hedge fund, I worked at two different hedge funds and that's pretty much what I did at both of them. And then the VC game is very, very different. You know, you're not investing in the public markets, you're investing in startups. Um, I'm also raising money for the first time. So when I worked in the hedge fund space, I never was involved in the capital raising. That was something that they had other people doing. Um, as the founder of a VC fund, I'm actually responsible for actually making sure we have money to invest. So I'm spending many hours a day, usually talking to potential investors and trying to pitch them on why they should become investors in our fund. Is it a zero sum gain when you do a raise or if you stop like at 40% of the way there, do you just keep that money and then that's your fund? Or do you have to meet like a fund or like 10, 10 million, whatever your, your goal is to have a fund for VCs? Um, people can set it, set it up however they want. Uh, for yeah. our fund, we kind of, whatever we raise is what we raise. So, okay. um, and the money that we've raised, we've already made investments out of it. So like, you know, you can't really walk back an investment once the, once the check is written, like it's in the bank account of the company. So we've invested in 14 companies so far. Um, and we're going to try and invest in about 30 out of this fund. What is, do you have a traditional time horizon for the fund or are you doing anything fun there? Uh, yeah, nothing, no innovation on the structure, whether that's like the time horizon, et cetera. Most venture funds are set up to have a 10 year life. Yeah. And that is what this fund is as well. So it's kind of just a formality. Like if the companies get sold or go public before 10 years, like the capital gets distributed then. Um, if there's still companies that haven't had a liquidity event by 10 years, then you know the fund can just be extended usually. So hmm. it's not nothing too exciting there. <laughs> Pretty standard yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, with, with a software machine learning type background, how do you assess companies do you still use those type of like quantitative analysis when you look at a startup, even though it is kind of like, there's not that much data to the, to some extent, like you have like clinical research. So some papers, potentially you have a team with certain variables of experience, but like, I guess there is the makings of an, ex, uh, an equation there, I suppose, but I'm just curious, like what your thought process is, is for assessing people. No, you basically said it like, um, in order to have a good machine learning model, you need like a ton of data in order to train the model. And so in the startup world, there's really just not a lot of data. So this is very different than what I was doing at the hedge fund, to be sure. Um, We do, we assess things in a similar way to the way that most other VCs do. So we, uh, since we're an early stage VC, a lot of times like the companies 
haven't even done very much. Like they have a team assembled, they have a pitch deck, maybe they've done some preliminary research, maybe not. But the number one thing is like evaluating the team. Do we think this is a good team that we want to work with? Do we think that these people have the skills to pull off what they say they're going to pull off? Do they have good reference checks that we can call? Um, are they going to, do we believe that they're going to be able to raise all of the money that they need to raise? Cause like our fund isn't big enough to totally fund them. So it usually takes multiple investors. So it's like, mm -hmm. do our other investors going to invest as well? Um, on the scientific front, does their scientific plans check out, et cetera. All those things are very, very qualitative for the most part. Um, and you can make a list and you can try and like turn it into a formula as much as you want. But I think there's always going to be like a bit of an art in uh, startup investing. Hmm. Whereas yeah, as in you were public that, markets with tons of data, you can be a little bit more scientific. Yeah. As, as you were saying, I was just imagining like a series of Leichhardt tests, like a Scantron things. It's like you and your team were assessing them on yeah. different criterion. Um, we, probably we, less and we do, and we do do that too. Like we have some checklists that we've made, but the interesting thing about startups is that even though there are a lot of similarities, there are still, it's almost like every single time we run a company against one of our checklists, something comes up where we're like, our checklist didn't really capture that attribute of that company mm. or something like, you know, something, or maybe there's like a company that maybe fails actually a lot of the checklist items, but they're super, super strong in one of the checklist items. And it's like, maybe we should invest anyway, because they're just really exceptionally good at this one thing, even though maybe we think they're lacking here and there maybe they can actually fix those areas they're lacking in. We just want to invest in that strength along that one dimension. Um, it's, it's all, it's, it's, uh, there's no, you know, perfect recipe, I think. Is there, and the, a and the real challenging part is that you don't know if you're right or not for a long yeah. time, because it takes these companies a long time to, you know, have a liquidation event. Whereas in the public markets and the hedge fund world, you know, you can, if you're doing a short-term trade, you can buy in the morning and sell in the afternoon and like, know if you were right or wrong that same day. Mm -hmm. Is there a, uh, are there, okay, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the data for this, but is there a trade that, are there traits that if, if those are wins that you'll, you like are more flexible than other things? And are there traits that even if they are great, like maybe look, makes the other ones look less, I guess. I don't know how to phrase that question. Yeah. I, th I think the one thing that is like absolutely essential is that the team has to be a super high caliber. So if we think that like the vision for the company is really good, like the idea is really good, but the team kind of isn't that good, we're like not going to invest in it probably, even if the idea is like amazing as far as we can tell. Um, because ideas are important, but like if the team cannot execute on the idea, it doesn't matter. So in many ways, we would rather fund like an excellent team with kind of like a whatever idea than an excellent idea with like a whatever team. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. There's a, there, um, sometimes when people are, I don't know, getting to know each other, like if you're hiring someone, I imagine it's the same thing for investing. I haven't been a VC, obviously, but I imagine like it's similar in the sense that sometimes people say things that they mean, but like, sure. and it'll sound authentic, but at a certain point, you'll realize they're full of shit. <laughs> and it's like, it's like the sooner you can realize that, the sooner, like, you don't waste your time and stuff like that. Um, like, there was one time I was hiring for an early stage startup that I founded. And like there was a person I was talking to who's very qualified, but he just kept saying that he likes working with like early stage startups, with even if they have like limited funding and stuff like that. But then like his his ask was ridiculous. It was like mm. he was working at Amazon, like um, like a normal early stage like tech startup type thing, and he wanted like half a million dollars oh a my year. God. Wow. 
That's yeah, I was like, oh, I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't know what type of early stage drops you're working at, but it's not here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Good dude, luck. that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of BS and, th- and this is why you don't make the decision after one phone call. You know, it's like you do reference mm-hmm. checks, um, ideally reference checks with other people that you respect. Um, yeah. and ideally what you really want to do as a VC is you want to build really deep networks in the space that you invest in so that more likely than not, you end up knowing the person that starts the company before they even started the company. Like Mm. in my case, it's like, there's only a certain number of scientists who have the background to start a legit psychedelics company. Maybe they haven't started it yet, but you can just look at like who's publishing in the space. Um, Mm. And it's like, we should know all those people already. You know what I mean? And start having conversations with them today. So um, I think... What's his name? It's Lux Capital. It's an Josh SH Wolf. name. Uh, the other oh, guy. Josh. She, yeah, I forget. I forget. Uh, I met this guy. Uh, he's not Jack Wolf. He's the other guy. He's very smart. I liked him. His brain is like an exacto knife <laughs> in terms of how he asks questions. But he, um, when he was first starting, he would like basically like set up camp. If I remember the story right. Um, he basically set up camp around Stanford and just was talking to all the people who were coming up in like two or three years. And then when he had a, when he had his phone, he was like, well, I know these four people. I know these four people. Like he, like he knew yeah. before they were even, before they even like were fully crystallizing their idea that he was already there to like move them into his fund. And I think like Lux Capital kind of benefited from that a lot. Like I think sometimes people, they hear like an explosion and they go towards that. Like, oh, here's this really cool thing. So they move over there. And then they, like by the time, they get there, the explosion's already dying down and there's other things going on. So then they run to the next explosion versus right. people who are like, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to dig deep here. I'm going to make the explosions because I know the players to just give the money to. And, you know, they already have the the TNT and Dynamite. They just need a mat. Well, they just need a, a catalyst, I guess, the fi- the financing. Totally. Yeah. No, you're, yeah. you're dead on. Do you, um, do you uh, stake out colleges or is it really like you watch the papers and then you contact those people be like, Hey, I like your paper, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. It's more the latter. It's like, you look at the people that are publishing research in the psychedelic space and you try to figure out a way to get to know those people. Is it just in the U S or do you grab from the globe? No, there's a lot going on outside of the U S. Uh, the UK yeah. is actually pretty hot for psychedelics. Um, there's also a lot of interesting stuff coming out of Switzerland as well. Um, one interesting thing that a lot of people don't know about is that the war on drugs didn't really happen in Switzerland to the same extent mm-hmm. that it happened in the US, Europe, and the UK. You know, Switzerland's always kind of been its own thing. And so while psychedelic research basically halted for like the last five decades in the US, the UK, and Europe, there were still people doing studies with LSD at like universities in Switzerland, like that whole time. That's interesting. Um, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah. So there, yeah, crazy. So there's kind of there's like a pretty good history of a psychedelic science out of Switzerland. So Switzerland is known for a number of really um, like far out there policies. Like they, they're they're one of the few places that's assisted suicide. Is that something you could do? I think uh, Switzerland. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Most places don't have that. Like you just have to suffer until you die, which sucks. Yeah. Um, uh, which you know one of, one of, one of the things that people like psychedelics for is like uh, when people are let's say they're they're terminal, people will take it in that state, and it helps them come to terms with that and have a much better, healthier remaining time on the on the planet which is 
hugely beneficial. Like, you, you know, if there's two modes, like one, you're like screaming up until the end <laughs> or the other one is like, you're able to enjoy and smell the flowers and just take each day even more. Like, I think everyone would want to be in the latter category there. So totally. it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, um, definitely. Is there anything in the Switzerland area, like any cool factoids that you could share with us in terms of the, the research? Yeah, there, there are, I mean, it's hard for me to say specifically, there are some mm -hmm. companies we looked at that unfortunately I, they're kind of like, you know, in stealth mode and I can't really say too much about them. Yeah. Um, but I would just say that they've been doing a lot to keep like the research tradition alive during like the dark ages. And, um, it's worth just Googling Switzerland, like psychedelics research. Yeah. I, uh, I use a uh, Google scholar and then Sci-Hub or do you, yeah. do you have like, what, what are some of your research tools? Uh, Google scholar, you know, all the standard yeah. stuff. I also find a lot of interesting stuff on Twitter too, just by following the yeah. right people. Twitter is fun. People make fun of it, but there's like so much science learning going on there. And, um, I don't know to the extent it's changed under Elon. I mean, you're, you have a bigger, you're more involved on Twitter than I am. I just like post like random stupid things, but you actually have like cool science stuff that you post about. Um, how have you, has there been any change in your experience on Twitter? Uh, post or pre honestly, honestly no like i haven't noticed yeah. anything i know i know people love to like obsess over who owns twitter but like i literally unless like literally no difference <laughs> it seems like exactly yeah. the same maybe it's yeah. just i mean it may just be because the stuff that i post about is pretty apolitical um yeah. you know maybe it's different if you're like really out there posting politics but I not only do I not like post political stuff really just because I think that's dumb from like a business perspective. I have, I have in LPs in my fund. I have some LPs that are like super far left and some LPs that are like super Trump guys. So, hmm. um, you know, I would piss someone off. That's like an investor <laughs> by posting something, no matter what I post and probably piss someone off. Um, so don't, I don't post politically. And then I also just don't follow any accounts or like do anything with politics on Twitter just cause I'm kind of like not, trying to get sucked into that rabbit hole so yeah. the experience for me has been pretty static post elon yeah it's um yeah it's hard to enjoy the conversation like in the in those types of things if someone were to post something political whether you're for or against it it's like it's not like people are going to have a nice conversation about it no <laughs> like they're just rabid it's like it's like sometimes i'll go and just like look at something and it's like like you'll see a post and it's like piranha come out of nowhere and just start devouring the person and like the worst thing is when they respond back <laughs> It's like, yeah. stop feeding the piranha. Just go, like, sacrifice Literally, your leg. Dude, yeah, I, I, I use the mute feature, which allows you yeah. to, you don't have to block anyone, but it just, like, keeps their stuff. So anytime I see anything that's, like, political or, like, kind of rage bait or, you know, anything, I just mute the account, basically. And it's kept my Twitter, like, really nice and enjoyable. The I do that for uh, YouTube. When I started mm -hmm. the YouTube component, like, it's been, like, three or so months so far, uh, I, have, I got stuff like that and i was like i looked into it i was like oh you can shadow ban people with some buttons and so i've been like boop 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 and yeah, like i great. get like you see nothing but nice things on my po like even if you were saying something mean i'll let that ride i like the criticism sure but like if it's just like i don't want to die i don't want to be mean to anyone in particular but there's there's just some, like crazy things <laughs> yeah, it's like some like pretty it. intense things it's like it's not even like big yet like i i can't imagine the stuff that people have to deal with when it's like a million subs and stuff like that um and at the same time, like the comment section isn't very good on no. that's like one of the things I dislike about YouTube. It's like if it was like Reddit in the comments, that'd be great because Reddit, like you actually see cool uh, comments sometimes. Yeah. Definitely. You like filter for no, it. YouTube comments are garbage. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
what was the place in Mexico that's do I, I keep hearing about this, but I always forget the name. There's a there. Yeah. I feel like there's a place in Mexico that has like a, a therapy thing where people can come out and they get like the coaching, they get like the whole thing. And depending on like the package, I, if I remember right, is like uh, you can even have like an entire like room or area to yourself with like a specific coaching versus like a group thing or something. Yeah. So I think you're referring to a company that we invested in that's called Beyond, B-E-O-N-D. Um, Beyond is a clinic in Mexico that is using a drug called Ibogaine to help people break their addiction to opiates like heroin and um, you know oxy and that sort of thing. Ibogaine is a very interesting psychedelic drug that a lot of people are not familiar with. It's naturally occurring. It comes from the root of the aboga tree, which is native to West Africa. It's very, very powerful. The trip can last like 36 hours which is why people don't ever really do it recreationally, which is why it's like not really that popular, but it has this very interesting side effect in that like people that do Ibogaine report just not having cravings for heroin or other opiates. And there's like thousands of anecdotes of people that were using heroin every day, using Oxy every day, using Percocet every day, just totally like going clean after having one Ibogaine trip. So this center down in Mexico specializes in giving Ibogaine to people that are struggling with some kind of opiate addiction um, as a, you know, kind of an alternative to traditional rehabs. Yeah. I feel like the Sackler fucks should be forced to give like, I've thought about like, pay, uh, they should pay for the Ibogaine therapy. Shouldn't they? Yes, exactly. Essentially. I, I've been thinking like what Finland does where it's like a, a ratio of your, your, like how much money you make is like your, your bill. Like sometimes people talk about like parking tickets as just the cost of parking somewhere. And so if you if you create basically an epidemic that kills thousands of people, but your fine is like a billion dollars, but you've made $10 billion off of it, like the right, evil capitalist is going to do that. Like that's disturbing. So I've always felt like it should be like 1x of profit first offense. And then every additional offense is like you just add an, an X, yeah, like 2x, yeah, 3x. And they, they'll you. stop that's it. That's crazy. You would, yeah. you would hope so. <laughs> yeah, but they, they don't. A lot of the yeah. stuff like... uh. Even like when they do get fines, apparently the fine isn't about the fine. The fine is like a label for then civil suits to come in and then use it as grounds to sue for more. But it's like everyone's dead and been wounded and destroyed by that point. And the people who've made the money are like off living in the behind. Yeah, it's like I wish I wish the law could be a little bit faster on those types of things so people could get the help that they need. There's like a lot of really sad stories on people being taken advantage of or stuff. Yeah, but um, that's America. I feel like America was built for corporations. I don't know. That maybe that's political. But we were founded uh, by corporations. No, I think that, thing. yeah. I mean, America was built for a lot of things. Corporations definitely being one of them. Yeah. Um, what do you think will be the result of Empath Ventures after like ten years? Like if mm. ten years from now, the fund's done. It's been dispersed. You look at like probably twenty-five to fifty. I mean, it depends on your check size, I guess, but like uh, several dozen, maybe uh, startups that you've invested in, like what would be the qualitative difference that you want to see in the world because of it? I would hope that um, some of the companies that we funded ended up making a real dent in like the mental health crisis that we're currently in. Um, The joke that I always repeat is like the statistics around mental health are depressing. Uh, There's all these stats that I can quote to you, but uh, 20% of American adults are currently diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue. One in six American adults, 16 or 17% is currently on some sort of like psychiatric drug, whether that's an antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication, et cetera. 
A lot of those drugs don't really work that well. Like one in three people don't respond to antidepressants at all. When they do work, they often have, ne have negative side effects. Like, you know, antidepressants cause weight gain and sexual dysfunction. Anti-anxiety medications like Xanax can be addictive. And um, so it's like, we have all these fucking problems. It seems to keep getting worse. There's this statistic that the CDC calculates. It's called deaths of despair, and it includes suicides, drug overdoses, et cetera, that the rate of deaths of despair in the US has more than doubled over the past decade. Um, wow. All this shit just keeps getting worse despite you know, prescriptions of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications being like at an all-time high. Clearly, these the things that we have, the treatments that we have today are not really working that well. There has to be something better. I think that psychedelics might be that thing that's better. And um, maybe they're not the total solution, but they're like a big part of the solution. And so I hope that some of these companies that we invest in end up doing well, not only financially, but have a real impact on you know the mental health numbers in the US and worldwide. Yeah. That's kind of what we hope for. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Um, the, I mean, I really don't see anything else coming down the pipeline that has the potential to affect mental mental health like this type of stuff does. I think brain-computer interfaces, like what Paradromics or Neuralink is doing and how they could potentially, theoretically, have some intervention there. Um, but I mean, that's all like theoretical. Like, there's no like proof in the pudding there as far as I can tell in the, the ability to write um, change into the brain. I don't think anyone's yeah. done that yet. But um, this stuff here actually has some backing, and it's it's not even like it's not even like a moonshot, really. In in terms of like, there's no day. It's not like there like you heard of like you heard of an echo in a canyon that said, "Hey, it's gonna work." You know, it's like there's actually like a lot of stuff here that that supports yeah. that this can help people, a lot of people, which is that's very what's super interesting about psychedelics is like it's kind of backwards from how normal drug development and pharma works. Like usually, pharma invents a drug and then tries to prove it works. In this yeah. case, it's like, we already kind of know that it works at least in some way. And now we just have to like get the data up to the standards that the FDA expects. But we have like hundreds of thousands of anecdotal reports of people having their lives changed by this stuff. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Is there uh is there a reason why you picked mental health essentially to be your focus? Like it's, especially if something that's going to take like a decade, it's not like a, a, a trivial decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, is there a reason why? Yeah. I, I spent most of my twenties working in the hedge fund space. Like I mentioned, I had been using psychedelics personally since my early twenties. So I've been using psychedelics for about a decade as well. I liked the hedge fund job that I had in a lot of ways. I also didn't really love it in a lot of ways. Um, and when COVID hit, I had a lot of time to spend by myself thinking about, you know, what I was doing with my life and the type of like impact and legacy that I wanted to leave. Um, I was also coming up on my 30th birthday in 2020. And I kind of decided that I wanted to do something new going into the next decade of my life. And I wasn't really sure what that was, but I knew I needed to do something new because I wasn't super fulfilled by what I was doing at the hedge fund, even though it was pretty financially rewarding. And so I ended up quitting my job in 2020, just a few weeks before I turned 30. And I got kind of lucky because 2020 was the year that was kind of like the start of the for-profit psychedelics industry. This is when there was the first psychedelic IPO. This is when we first started seeing news stories about big investors like Peter Thiel backing psychedelic companies. And I was like, man, this is so crazy that there's this like thing that I've been doing for a long time, just personally underground. 
And now it's kind of like turning into an investable asset class. And I have a background in finance and I'm looking for something that has like more meaning. Like maybe this is the thing that I should do. That was kind of like how mm-hmm. it happened. Um, I think that, you know, if I had had the same realizations two or three years before, it would have been too early. And I think if I had had the same sort of like quarter life crisis, I guess more of a third life crisis, you know, five years from now, it would be too late. So it was really a timing thing, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, It's weird how only in hindsight do you see like what matters in terms of the things you do. Like if you yeah, look totally. at the life of Teddy Roosevelt, like you, you'd think his entire life was to be, to be present if you look at it in hindsight. But like as he's living in it, like as a kid who's like almost going to die and then becoming more physical and all these different things, like everything just, you don't know how you're, what you're doing is going to shape your future. It's just like, I think, but at the same time, it's like follow your interest. Um, there's, there's a question I have. I, I was having this conversation with someone who's on the show and I, I made the statement, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And they contended that uh, work shouldn't be hard. It should like, you should follow what interests you. But then if, if that's the case, wouldn't, um, and this is really, I just want to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> if you just follow your interests, aren't you limited by your previous interests? Like, how do you find something that you don't know you like without exploring things that you don't know you like? And there, if it's something you don't know you like, there is that initial hump of like, I'm, I'm not doing well, so this isn't fun. Like I, I taught myself coding at first, it's like, this sucks. And now it's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. This is neat. I can solve a problem in a day. Um, well, how do you think about that? Do you think it's possible to, like, if you looked at it, which, between those two dichotomies, and if you want to like, you know, add your own variables, well, that's fine. I would say, first of all, the uh, on the harder I work, the luckier I get thing. Well, work shouldn't be hard. It should be something that you really enjoy doing. The problem is, is that even if you work in a field that you really enjoy, there are going to be parts about it that suck and that you don't want to yeah. do. So even like, dude, my, like my little brother is, he's basically like a rock star. He's like a touring musician and like has like, has like a publishing deal and stuff. Like a lot of parts of his life, like kick ass. And he is literally like living the dream that like so many people want, but there's still a lot of stuff that he like hates about his job and gets annoyed with. You know what I mean? Like there's still Mm -hmm. shit that's annoying, even when you're like a literal rock star. So um, it's, there's no job that you're going to like so much that you're going to like every part of it. And yeah, you can like delegate and outsource, but only to a certain extent, there's always going to be headaches no matter what it is. So I I think the idea that like work is never going to be hard is kind of bullshit. That said, it's like a lot easier to motivate yourself to get through the hard stuff if you're working in a field or general area that you like. Yeah. No question. Um, So yeah, I think that's probably what I would say. And then in terms of like, how do you branch out and find new things that you like? It's tough. And as you get older, it becomes increasingly more difficult. Um, I would say that the best way to do it is to really listen to your gut when you feel like something is not right and you feel like not totally fulfilled by that thing. You should try to listen to that feeling and pivot and explore something new sooner rather than later because it only gets harder when you get as you get older. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know that I want to do this thing for the rest of my life. I kind of want to try this other thing. If you think you have a shot at it, you might as well just like do it now and not wait because it's not going to get easier. Yeah. Did you do like a full clean break when you made the transition or did you like dabble and make it like do like 10% of your time, 20% of your time? You slowly just added 10% until it was like 0% doing your hedge fund stuff. 
No, I actually left the hedge fund before I had even committed mm. to doing the psychedelics fund. Um, I I knew that I wanted to do something new in in with my career. I didn't know what. Um, and then after leaving the hedge fund, I decided to focus on psychedelics. Did you do anything to like burn your ships there so you couldn't go back? <laughs> Was that at all part of your strategy? Just knowing that, uh, like sometimes people do things. I know like exactly what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah. like I didn't get like a mushroom tattooed on my face or anything, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, there there was no big burn the ships moment. I mean, I think leaving the hedge fund was like, it's not a burn the ships thing. You can always like apply for another job or whatever. And I left on good terms, but um, no, there wasn't any like super dramatic burn the ships moment. No. Yeah. Sometimes people say that uh, like you need to kind of like cross the bridge and burn it behind you, kind of like the the with Troy, so you can like work your you'll you'll be you'll innovate more when you have nothing to go back to. But I know um, what you mean. I just don't know like how I could burn the ships. Like I, all the, <laughs> all the knowledge that I have about how to work at a hedge fund, I can't like purge that from my mind, you know? Yeah. Um, like I could always, even if I like burned all the bridges at the hedge fund that I worked at, there's still a lot of other hedge funds that I could go and like apply for jobs at, you know? So yeah. conceptually though, and mentally it can be good to have a burn the ships mentality where you don't think about like, well, I'm just going to try this for three months and then I'll go back. Like just totally forget about that and focus on the new thing in front of you. Yeah. You can mentally mentally burn the ships. It's kind of like harder to do it, um, you know, practically. Yeah. Yeah. Three months wouldn't be enough. You'd have to, I think like the minimal, especially with your thing, like 10 years to really see the outcome of your work. Like like, it'd be like a, like three-year minimum to really know yeah. if you're, how quickly would you know if you're doing the bad thing? Like if let's say you left, you're doing your thing. How, how quickly would you know? Like, Oh, I think I'm going down the wrong, wrong path again. <laughs> yeah. It's super hard to know, man. And I mean, even just to give you a scale for my own thing, I left the hedge fund in December of 2020 mm-hmm. and I didn't start empath until like the end of August, early September, 2021. So it was like almost nine months later that I, before I even started the fund. Hmm. What um what are the parts of the fund that you find to be less fun? Um I would say, you know, raising money is very challenging. I I I don't dislike it, but my main thing that I enjoy about investing is like the analytical process of like analyzing an investment opportunity and deciding whether it's good or not. Um repeating the same pitch to hundreds of different investors there's certainly like some kind of satisfaction that I do get from that, but it is probably not my most favorite part of running a fund. Um, so yeah, that's probably like the hardest part for me. Hmm. Is it, um, is it possible like game the system where you can like, I think of it like hunting where like you like throw a honey pot or a honey trap down there and like all the investors come into one spot and then you just, you like you pitch them all in, in one go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like not rob them, <laughs> but yeah. like, I don't get them all on a boat or so. I don't know where like billionaires hang out, like, like right. find an Island and like corral them sure, there or something. Sure. Yeah, you can. So we've done some stuff like that. We've thrown events, we've thrown parties, et cetera. And that can be good to get the initial people together. Uh, the difficult part is that it's very rare to like have everyone in a room, give them the pitch and then they all invest right there. What happens more practically in that scenario where you have, you know, 20 billionaires on the yacht or whatever is like you give them all the pitch at the same time 
And then all of them are like, this is great. Why don't we follow up in three weeks? Here's the contact of my assistant. And so you still end up having like a tremendous amount of like hmm. um, follow-up calls and deeper due diligence with each one. And uh, so it's uh, maybe there is some honeypot secret. I just haven't, you know, developed enough as a fundraiser to really like know how to use it. Hmm. Do you think they are artificially slowing it down so they can take time in assessing you? Um. I think it's not so much assessing us as it is, you know, investing in psychedelics is a new thing. It's like just new conceptually to most of the world. And so we have a lot of investors that are like maybe people that are familiar with psychedelics. Maybe they even do psychedelics themselves, but they haven't really thought about this idea of like investing in psychedelic medicine as an asset class. And so now they hear about our fund and they're like, man, this is interesting. I want to learn more, not just about Brahm and Empath Ventures. I want to learn more about the psychedelic business world in general. And so they spend you know, a few weeks or a few months just trying to understand the space mm. and the landscape, et cetera. Is it possible to like um, create like a white paper or like a, like a little repository for them so that mm-hmm. you could be, like you just keep them in your walled garden? Yeah. I mean, well, you can't keep anyone in your walled garden. People still have Google, but uh, we do, we do have a lot of, we do have a lot of resources that we Mm. uh, share with people. Some of them are things that we wrote ourselves. Some of them are just like a curated selection of articles and, you know, links, et cetera. Yeah. 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 And I always like uh, finding a way to keep people on one thing. Cause then, you know, the more people click out, there's one person I was, I was looking at a business uh, and uh, people were like, this business is going to run our business out of, this was like four or five years ago. And they were like, this business is going to run us out of business. It was like, go on the website and try and buy their product and count how many clicks you have to do it. And they were like, uh, it took like 16 to 17 clicks. They are not our competitor. <laughs> like yeah. they can, they can buy our product or our service within like two clicks. Like no one, no one likes their product enough to do that. <laughs> like no one, sure. no one likes anything rare. enough to click like 17 times. So the more you can keep people like on one thing, it's kind of nice. Um, I think you're right about that. Do you, uh, when you learn information about the field, like you and your entire team, how do you guys make sure that the knowledge gained by one member isn't lost and can be given mm. to another member? Do you have like a central repo or anything like that? Like an in-house Wikipedia to like share the hard knowledge that you're gaining? Yeah. We don't have like some big complicated internal wiki. I mean, we're, a super small group. Like I'm full-time on the fund. You know, I'm the general partner. I started it. I have a Samantha who's like scientific partner. And then we have some advisors. We have a venture partner, Melody. Um, There are people that have like various levels of, you know, attachment to the fund, I guess, you know, some advisors we talk to once every month. Some of them are like much more frequent with kind of the core team. We do have weekly meetings where we share what we've learned um, when it comes to tracking investment trends or opportunities in different companies, we have like a shared task board on Monday where mm-hmm. we track all the deals that we're currently evaluating, where we um, store all the pitch decks that we've received, et cetera. Um, in terms of like scientific stuff, we just have, you know, some like Google Drive folders that are kind of categorized. We, we try to keep it pretty simple. Um, I do think especially a lot of, one of my sort of like maybe, hot takes is that like a lot of this um there's a lot there's a big obsession with like knowledge management and stuff and i think a lot of it is just kind of like uh you know intellectual masturbation for lack of a better word like people get really obsessed with like the ultimate wiki system the ultimate tagging thing oh no we got to move to notion oh wait we actually have to move to obsidian because it actually has like this feature and it's like bro 
you should be able to build a fucking empire in Google Docs. Like you don't need like all this fancy shit. You don't need like a million like backlinks. Um, it's cool. And I'm sure it helps in some cases, but for like 99.9% of use cases, like Apple notes or Google docs is like just fine. And like, it doesn't have to be, have like some fancy organizational structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it, is do you, uh, so one thing that I've, I've seen is that sometimes like people like the power of a platform, kind of like a Ginkgo Bioworks yeah. is a bit of a platform. So people like that, but they also don't like the unspecificity of a platform because like people mm-hmm. like to be laser focused, like I'm building this thing. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? And like, how would you balance the two? Because people are like, oh, I want a platform. But then it's like, well, you can't sell a platform. You have to sell something specific. But then if you're selling something right. specific, then you're selling the platform. It's like, it's kind of like a circle that like kind of like stabs. I don't, I don't think Ginkgo Bioworks started as a platform. I think they started as like a product. Like, I think it was like some scent thing or something. They're like making like, dinosaur perfume or something and then they became a platform yeah uh it's it's, you're right like you know a lot of um especially more like tech kind of generalist funds that invest in biotech want to see a platform so like Andreessen Horowitz is pretty famous for like only investing in biotech platforms they won't invest in like single asset companies or even multiple asset companies where all the assets have been kind of like designed by hand um when you look at more traditional biotech investors, a lot of them are more open-minded to just these, you know, non-platform type companies, for example. We've invested in both. We've invested in some companies like Maps, which literally has like one program. It's like they're trying to get MDMA approved by the FDA as a treatment for PTSD. And we've also invested in some companies like Pangea, which is like this whole platform for nature-inspired drug discovery. That's uh, I think that one kind of, I don't know if it's a truth, but a thing that I've seen a lot is a lot of companies that really are just like rationally designed one or two or three product companies dressing up like a platform company because they know that will get a lot of investors excited, even though the platform technology that they supposedly have is very vague. And by the way, if you look closely, you'll realize that whatever platform they claim they have wasn't actually used to design the assets in their pipeline. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's like the assets came first and then they're like, by the way, we have this platform and it's like kind of vague. Um, yeah. It's actually just like three PhD assistants and like a lab cook. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the, the, what is a platform and what is not a platform is kind of a big question. The utility mm-hmm. of platforms is kind of to be determined. I don't know that there's really like a right or wrong answer to have there. It's probably best to just invest in both. Assume yeah. that there's good options in both. Yeah. And then also from like a founder or someone who's joining a team to look at it within that lens as well. Like what are they what are they actually doing? That's something that that bothers me. I know it's like marketing. You can kind of like BS what you're doing, but it bothers me when someone advertises one thing and it's not that. Like there I know many startups that say true. like we're doing this innovative thing, but you actually look at what their what the product offering is gonna be. Like uh, one example, because I just was recently talking to someone in Cell Egg. And a lot of people say they're a cellular agriculture company, but if you actually look at the product offerings they're making, it's not cellular agriculture. It's plant-based. It's like, they're not, it's like they want the benefit of like this innovative thing, but they're not spending the dollars to build that innovative thing. I don't know if there's like a, totally. a, a like something like that in the psychedelics where people say like, oh, I'm doing this innovative thing, but really it's just like blue, blue label, like not even that innovative at all. They're just kind of like taking stuff off the shelf. Um, yeah, I mean, people always try to make it seem like what they're doing is more interesting and more unique than it always is. Um, 
I guess maybe in psychedelics, what you see is you see people saying like, oh, we like invented this new drug. What they really did is like they took an existing drug and tweaked it really slightly. Um, so they like replaced a hydrogen with deuterium or something, which like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like, yeah, I guess technically you're right. It is new, but it's like not that interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of BS for sure, but that's the case in every industry. How, um, if the drugs like MDMA, psilocybin, et cetera, are kind of old, uh, how are they defensible in the sense of like building IP around them? If they're kind of, mm-hmm. I imagine by now they're in like the open where anyone could work with them. Yeah. So they're def- you definitely can't get like composition of matter patents on them because you didn't invent them. You can get method of use patents, which means mm-hmm. that you can patent using MDMA for like post-traumatic stress disorder in conjunction with this particular therapy that's been developed. Um, you can also sometimes get patents on like specific synthesis methods. So like Compass Pathways, for example, which is a company that is trying to get psilocybin approved by the FDA. They didn't invent psilocybin, but they, I believe someone might call me out on this. I think they have a patent on the method of synthesizing psilocybin that they're using. Mm. So they have like a manufacturing IP. I think they also have a patent on like a specific crystalline form of psilocybin that they're actually using in the trials. So that's kind of how it works. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, when you're not, but, but investing... obviously the best IP is like, you actually invented something new. That's like mm-hmm. the gold standard. That's like the ideal. The problem is, is when you invent something new, you have to put it through a lot more trials than if you work with something that already exists. Yeah. Uh, when you're not investing or researching, what are you doing for fun? What is Brahm in um, his free time? Yeah. What is Brahm in his free time? I, I do a lot of this, the typical LA stuff. I go to the beach, I go for hikes, um, mm. work out, uh, been trying la- last year was a pretty socially isolated year. I was really working on the fund pretty hard this year. One of my goals is to really just expand, you know, my non-work friend circle. So I've been trying to really develop those, 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 uh, friendships outside of work. Yeah. And How I've, do you always, make- I've always been a bit of like a musician so you know playing playing more guitar and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, how do you make friends in your 30s that's one of the one of the the i always see like reddit posts about this like how do you make friends in your 30s um so the guy friend that i've been spending a lot of time with i met him like two years ago at this big like of investor it wasn't an investor but it was just like some like tech in la event thing to like a hundred something people there and I remember seeing this guy walking in and he was dressed so ridiculously. He was wearing like this absurdly patterned shirt and he had it like unbuttoned down to his belly button. And I was like, man, this guy looks like such a douchebag. I got to talk to this guy. And I, and I did, I was like, dude, your shirt looks crazy. And then we just started talking. Um, turns out he's really smart. Um, but it's the same way that you find other opportunities. You just like start with the people in your immediate circle and meet their friends and meet their friends. And then you guys go to events and you meet other people and it just keeps growing. That's it. Yeah. I think it's the same way you make friends in your twenties. You just don't happen to be at a college or university, you know? Mm-hmm. I heard, um, I, I think a friend of mine was telling me that that strategy is really good for picking up women. So what you do is you go to a bar or like a thing and you basically are there a lot, but you don't like bother anyone. And at a certain time you start like broaching a conversation with them. And then like, since you're a regular, it's not creepy, then they're like more likely to engage. And then you make like a non-creepy suggestion for a group activity. And then that person has like a good time with you. So then they tell everyone else in that uh, organization that you're a good person to be around. And then you hang out with the rest of them. Uh, 
I would imagine that would probably work. It sounds like a lot of thought. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. He's like a, yeah, he's, he spends a lot of thought on that. Is type he like of a thing. dating coach or something. Uh, I won't dox him, but if he's okay. listening, he knows I'm talking about him. <laughs> he's a he knows artist. I'm talking about him. Right. Yeah. He knows I'm talking about him. Okay, uh, okay. We have, he was on the podcast. Actually. He's a, he's a nice guy. Um, yeah. uh, are there any big opportunities in psychedelics that we haven't talked about? I think we talked about a lot of the opportunities, like looking at uh, Switzerland, not Sweden, um, yeah. uh, you know, the pipeline that's coming up in the next three, uh, two or three years. But are there are there things that as you've looked at the field that you're like, well, here's some opportunities that um, I've identified, but no one's really touching them yet. Maybe like someone listening be like, oh, I have that idea. Yeah. Well, I can tell you about what I think is kind of next in the space. Hmm. We've talked a lot about psychedelics for depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And that stuff is super important. And psychedelics are really good at that stuff because it's because psychedelics are so good at it. And because it's kind of so well-known, there's a lot of companies working on that stuff. And at this point, honestly, the field's a bit saturated. Um, so the next thing I think is going to be applying psychedelics to things outside of depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Uh, psychedelics are kind of known to induce neuroplasticity in humans neuroplasticity is kind of like the opposite of neurodegeneration. And I'm speaking, you know, not totally scientifically accurately here, but this is kind of the general thesis. Um, neurodegeneration is implicated in things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Maybe, maybe there's like a way that psychedelics or drugs that are similar to psychedelics could be used as some kind of therapy for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, I do think that addiction is something that has been explored quite a bit, but probably not nearly enough. There's probably a lot more applications of psychedelics to uh, things like addiction. Um, but this general trend of exploring the non-mental health stuff is really interesting. And then the other big trend is we know about a lot of the kind of obvious psychedelics like mushrooms and LSD and ayahuasca, et cetera. But there's this whole universe of like psychoactive plants out there. Like if you go to yeah. any corner of the world, pretty much, there's probably some plant that's native to that area that has some kind of like psychological effect on humans. Um, and, you know, many of these drugs have just never become like really popular or known to the majority of, the, of people for whatever reason. And I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to come out of those like lesser known psychoactive plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm curious if you could like juice to learn learn more. Like you take take this thing and then like you learn new stuff because I, I um, oh, there's accelerated a, accelerated learning. Yeah, yeah. I always think about learning how quickly how to like quickly learn new things. Yeah, and I think once you once you've like learned like three or four new things outside of school, that there's like I feel like like Einstein has like this theory like everything's connected. And I feel like the mm -hmm. more people I talk to the more subjects I come in, in contact with, I feel like there's like a structure of things being related, but I'm not yep. smart enough to make all the connections, but I feel like there's something there. And so I wonder like if you just like took, took these things and then like really focused on like uh you know, like a physics problem or whatever, like if you would have a better chance at like learning and seeing something that's new or just on the learning aspect of it, like, can you have like, it's like neo neotropic. I don't know. There's like a term ne for things. Like neotropic that like, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, all of this stuff is, we're in the speculation zone here. There hasn't been yeah. a lot of like trials done on this. Um, I would suspect that, you know, maybe the right drug at the right dose, probably a pretty low dose might allow you to retain information better, um, might allow you to look at a problem from a unique angle. Um, who knows? It's hard to say. Um, yeah. There's a lot, but there are a lot of people that are definitely interested in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, 
I can't learn all the stuff I want to fast enough isn't something that the FDA recognizes as like a disease. So the uses of psychedelics for those applications is going to be kind of probably done outside of the medical system and more on like the recreational side, you know, where mm. people just experiment with this, like on their own. Um, and yeah, tons of people swear by microdosing while working. I don't, I don't want to be the guy that says it does work or doesn't work. I think it's kind of an open question. Um, yeah. The point I think here is that there are a lot of potential use cases for psychedelics and we barely scratched the surface at what they're capable of. Yeah. Do you, um, do you see yourself ever, let's say like you are really successful, you're a billionaire now. I don't know if you're a billionaire already. I apologize if, I, if that's available somewhere. Definitely <laughs> but, not, not, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> if you're a billionaire, wouldn't you like not tell people? I would not tell people if I was a billionaire. I'd be like, yeah, just turn your own it's middle class guy. <laughs> yeah, just, just a guy. Don't, don't, I don't get know, man. It's hard. I, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of, or the mindset of a billionaire just because I'm so far away from that. Yeah. But you met a lot of them. Are they, are they like, I've met a few. I met like, yeah, I met like two or three. Yeah. They just seem like regular Joes. They just seem like, you know, the people that earned it, the people who like inherited it, they, they, they're kind of squirrely. But like yeah. the people um, like earn the money, like they're pretty nice. Yeah. They seem mostly normal for the most part. <laughs> yeah. But they could be like your neighbor. You know, yeah. like they just like, they work a lot and maybe they have a private jet, but beyond that, like, it's not like, like you could, you could be a billionaire. Like you don't like act. It's not like, but the ones who inherit it, some, sometimes they're a little squirrely. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I think maybe knowing like the cost of milk is a good thing for to, you know, quote something from, uh, how much from, is uh, a gallon of milk? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, how the reference is the fucking milk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the new season's coming out. Are you excited for it? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I like really liked that show. It was, it was like, I was kind of whatever about it. So I don't know if I'll watch the new season. It was, it was cool, but I don't know. I watched the recent season, season three. And then I heard the person who's making it say that he doesn't think people change, that everyone just stays the same. Hmm. And that basically they're just a different situation. So they, they like Roman, when he stood up to his dad in the last episode versus yeah. Roman who like couldn't raise his hand in the board meetings. He's the same guy that yeah. that kind of pisses me off. Like we're going through all this journey of people doing stuff and they're the same person. I finally don't agree with that premise. Like I feel like, I feel sad for people who think that people don't change when they go through things. Like, but the, the, the guy who's writing the show thinks people don't change and they're just the same person hmm. who just enters different rooms. It's like, well, that's going to be a really depressing ending because basically however, the, where the show started is where it's going to end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did kind of feel like there was some character development, maybe not as much as I would want to see, but yeah, yeah definitely an entertaining show. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't know if like actual wealthy people are like that, you know, like entire rooms dedicated to their childhood or whatever, if they have like a birthday I'm party. Sure some, there are some. Yeah. Um, are there any books that you recommend people check out anything you're currently reading? Um, yeah, in the psychedelic space, if you're interested in psychedelics, there's a book that's pretty interesting that's called P Call, P I H K A L. And that's an acronym. It stands for phenethylamines okay. I have known and loved. Phenethylamines is like a type of psychedelic. Um, the guy that wrote it was this basically genius, like chemistry dude from back in the 70s, 80s. Um, he was at UC Berkeley and in his free time, he basically invented new psychedelic drugs, synthesized them in his basement, and then tested them out on himself and his friends. Hmm. And over the course of his career, he basically invented like hundreds of new drugs that no one had ever invented before. 
some of which became very popular on the recreational market. Uh, 2CB is probably like his most famous uh, creation. The book is super interesting though, because this guy is like a genius and it's like half memoir, half trip report where he's like describing the effects of these drugs and then half like chemistry manual where he literally describes like not only how he synthesized these drugs, but the thinking behind how, why he decided to make this molecule. He's like, this particular molecule made me feel this way because of like this structure. And so I theorized that if I changed like this carbon thing, then like it would maybe do something different. And then here's how I went about synthesizing it. And then, oh, and here's what it was like to fuck my wife while high on this drug. Like, it's like this wow. crazy, it just goes from like one thing to the next. It's really crazy. Yeah. So it, it sounds like a, like a science equivalent of losing my virginity by Richard Branson. That, yeah, kind of. Definitely. <laughs> that guy, I don't know to the extent, I, I don't familiar with that book, but I don't know to the extent like those things are true things that happened or if he's just like remembering them in such a positive way. Yeah. I haven't actually read the book. I've read some excerpts, but hmm. so I don't know. Well, there, there was a lot of like, I'm looking for a place to stay. He looks at houseboats. He meets a lady who's single, has sex with her, and then lives there for six months. It's like, how, how much is, how, how often can that happen before it's like, either he's like a predator that hunts people <laughs> right, or he's right, just like right. really lucky, you know? Uh, but that sounds like a really cool book. I'm going to definitely check that out and read it's it this weekend. It's pretty cool. It's, very, it's pretty long too. But the good thing is, is that it's one of those books that you can kind of just like open it to any random page and start reading. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be read in sequence. Is there, it doesn't have to be psychedelic related, it could just be personal. Um, is there something that you're currently trying to learn more about? Um, I actually want, one of my goals this year is I want to get better at music theory and like jazz chords. So that's something that I want to learn more about. What's a jazz chord? Like interesting chords outside of just for standard, like major and minor chords that mm. are in most, you know, pop music. So like, minor sevenths weird like chord suspensions um like chord substitutions that make like you know the jazz like neo soul funk type sounds i want to like understand okay. the theory of how those why those sound the way that they do how what is your current plan to gain that knowledge lots of youtube <laughs> hmm. yeah okay and and experimenting on the guitar hmm. i will go to new orleans on youtube there you go it's, yeah. it's cheaper and it's faster and you can Definitely. get back to work in 10 minutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm learning the violin. It is coming along. It doesn't yeah. entirely sound like a cat screaming anymore, which is kind of nice That's for good. the neighbors. That's the cat scares part is the worst part. Yeah. Smooth, it should be smooth from here on out. Yeah. It's, it's weirdly fun though. Like uh, I didn't, I don't know how to uh, play an instrument, but like playing an instrument is actually like, feels really good. I, I like, I it's think so um, fun. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if like what would happen if like everyone could get over that hump of like, well, this sucks to try it out. Because yeah. like if if you're stressed out, play play some or like draw a picture. Um, it feels good. Like it's a very it's like uh, problem solving and like playing the violin. It's like very similar feelings. Like definitely. Yeah. Um. So that's what you're learning about. Uh. Do you have a newsletter? I know you have a podcast. Is there uh? Do you have like a newsletter? I would like to download your brain like every like quarter that was possible. <laughs> yeah, we we have like a monthly newsletter that we send out. It's pretty sparse. It's usually just like, yeah. here's how much money we've raised. Here's maybe one or two interesting things happening in the world of psychedelics. Um, and then here's any updates of our portfolio company. We, it's, it goes out once a month. Um, and yeah, there's actually no public signup link, but I can yeah. add you to it if you want to. Yes, I love to learn yeah. as cool. by my, the title of <laughs> my podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, for 
so there are people who need to keep you happy in terms of like uh like if they want you to be on the next round versus yeah. like you have to keep lps happy is it a similar structure in terms of uh so sometimes people do this thing that's very really dumb where they're like they'll get money from you and then they won't give you any updates for like i don't know what is it like 18 months they'll be yeah, like i, I need more money ha- i'm doing like, it. i need more no 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 yeah that does suck when it happens to you this is why we send out monthly updates <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that we're okay. not that guy. Yeah. My, it's so critical. Like I tell all of the startups that we work with, like, even if you feel like nothing happened in the last month, send an email that says like nothing happened. In the last month. <laughs> Just like do some, mm-hmm. make some kind of update. So I know you're alive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And uh, you don't even have to read it per se, like as an investor who's busy, it's just like, oh, they're thinking of me or they're being totally, it's so uh, critical. Yeah, so we, we, we hope that our, um, we hope that our portfolio companies send updates and we try to make very frequent updates and regular updates to our LPs. Yeah. One of my, uh, horror stories in life was that I was meeting like the guy of Lux and, uh, I was meeting him for something else and he thought I was there to update him on a, on a company. And so he's, he's there to, like grill me on stuff. I'm like, I don't know any of these answers. <laughs> I'm not the guy <laughs> to That's stop so it. Funny. That's hilarious. But it, was, it wasn't like, it wasn't one time. It was like the whole day. There was like 20 people who all thought they were getting right. updates because like the, the group I was with didn't give them updates for like two years. And so they were all like grilling me and they were like clearly unhappy. And I'm like, I don't know the answers. I can oh I, I, so I can funny. get the guys. I can get the people. But it was like, it was brutal. <laughs> it's like, the, like, because like, like, like within like five minutes, like they knew I didn't know. And so like some of them were being very mean about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but like the, the fun, like usually like the, like the actual like owners of the fund were like pretty chill. But uh, like everyone else who like worked under them was like kind of like pissed. And it's like, I, I, it's not my fault. I was very clear in my email. <laughs> so like for anyone else out there, just communicate. Even if it's like what you're saying, like even if it's really small. Um, yeah, totally. is, there, is there a problem you're having that you wouldn't mind people's help with? Like it, it, big or small with the fund with, without finding opportunities? Yeah, the, the biggest, I mean, the biggest challenge, uh, I think, and the, it's the same challenge that everyone that's raising money right now is having is just finding investors. So if you are... An investor, if you're an accredited investor or you know accredited investors that are interested in psychedelics, you know, reach out. Um, we're still accepting LPs. Our website is empath.vc. You can email us at hello at empath.vc or you can just DM me on Twitter at the real Brahm. Um, yeah, that's kind of the main thing that we're looking for. And of course, we're looking for cool entrepreneurs that are starting companies in the psychedelic and next-gen mental health space as well. So feel free to send your pitches over. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found, subscribe, tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.